Job is the one who said, man is born to trouble as sparks fly upward. Some people might conclude the same thing can be said about churches, that they're born to trouble. Conflict in churches seem to have never been as pronounced as they are in our own day. As a matter of fact, a recent article this year, or I guess last year now, in Christianity Today, noted that at any given time in the United States, 25% of churches are probably in some sort of conflict, major conflict. Some sort of disruption to the unity of the body, some sort of perhaps split going on. The worst of these would be non-denominational Pentecostal churches. They usually range above 30% in the kind of conflict they experience. Baptist churches are not far behind. And beyond these major disruptions, a Pew clergy survey found that 70% of churches noted at least some sort of minor conflict, which was an impediment on the spiritual life and growth of their churches. As a matter of fact, Christianity Today in their own research found that 95% of churches claim to have that kind of conflict. Conflicts erupt over most often things like building and renovation projects, finances, worship styles, changes in leadership. But all of them really can be grouped under typical control struggles, loyalty to various factions. Most people who fill out these surveys generally designate their conflict over, over issues of vision for their church. It's pretty evenly split when you look at the numbers between inner city churches, suburban churches, country churches, rural churches. Although statistically, we're told, you're more likely to have conflict if your congregation is made up of a majority of people over the age of 60. Or if your pastor is younger than the age of 30. Or if your church is more than 75% female. (laughs) I'm just reporting the numbers. Don't ask me the connection. Or if your sermons last between 11 or 20 minutes. Apparently short sermons don't lend themselves to unity in churches. Whatever the reason, we all probably can attest to some sort of anecdotal evidence, some sort of personal testimony of being wrapped up in some conflict or being an observer to some conflict somewhere along the way. We can all give sort of anecdotal testimony to the disruption it brings to the, the, the life of the church, people's personal spiritual lives, people leaving churches all the time. And more than that, we can give evidence and testimony to the damage it does to the work of Christ and to the testimony of Christ throughout the world. That sets an important context for us as we begin today a study of the book of 1 Corinthians because this was a book that's largely written against the backdrop of conflict. In the opening chapter in verse 11 of chapter 1, Paul indicates that one of the main reasons that he writes this letter is because he had received a report from a certain group of people associated with a lady named Chloe, that there, was, there were factions and there was quarrels and fighting threatening to rip apart this congregation. And it becomes a major theme as you move throughout this book 
conflict manifesting itself in allegiance to various teachers, manifesting itself in boasting and efforts to put on display a superiority of wisdom or knowledge that was puffing uh, them up against one another, conflict within marriages, conflict over dietary freedoms and issues of conscience, conflict causing Christians to drag one another before secular courts in the local society, conflict at the Lord's table, conflict over the exercise of spiritual gifts. It's just woven throughout this entire book. Conflict and division and factions. And so Paul feels compelled to write a letter to address these reports that he was hearing, and not only these, but other reports. As a matter of fact, he mentions one in chapter 5, verse 1. He says it's actually reported that there's sexual immorality among you and worse than that in the world. So here's the Apostle Paul ministering from a distance to this church and responding to all these reports, trying to wrap them all up in this letter and address them as best that he can. And not only that, but he apparently had received a letter from them that he also takes opportunity to respond to. In the course of reading through Corinthians, you can take note of these issues because they're always designated by the phrase, now concerning. And you'll find it, for example, chapter 7, verse 1, Paul says, now concerning the matters about which you wrote. And in chapter 7, verse 25, he says, now concerning the betrothed. Or you come to chapter 8, verse 1, now concerning food offered to idols. Or in chapter 12, he says in verse 1, now concerning spiritual gifts. Chapter 16, once again, he says, now concerning the offering, the collection, I should say, for the saints. And even in chapter 16, verse 12, he says, now concerning our brother Apollos. All these things, apparently some letter that they had written to him, wanting him to mediate maybe some disputes, to resolve some issues, to address some theological problems for them. And Paul takes the opportunity to do that in this letter. Now, he was, he was very dear to them as they were to him because Paul had spent probably as much time with the Corinthian church as he had with, with any other church. He spent probably close to two years there, only exceeded by how much time he spent in Ephesus. We have a pretty good idea about when this was because Acts 18 tells us that Paul had been in Corinth for 18 months, at which point a man named Gallio was appointed the proconsul of Achaia. And we know by Greco-Roman records that Gallio was in fact appointed to that position in July of 51 A.D. So just calculating back from 51 A.D., July 51 A.D., we can calculate back and sort of place when Paul arrived in Corinth sometime in late 49 or early 50 A.D., the years, in other words, immediately following the Jerusalem council, when Paul had received the affirmation of the, uh, of the apostles there and returned to Galatia, where he had been ministering in, in the area of Turkey, he returned to southern 
Turkey there, Southern Asia Minor, and ministered more to the Galatian churches, no doubt delivering to them the good news that the apostles affirmed their freedom in Christ and, and lay no further burdens on them regarding the Mosaic law. But it was in Galatia that Paul received a vision of the Lord, a man standing and calling him to work in Macedonia. He began a rough journey that would eventually land him in Corinth. You remember it begins, or he begins his ministry in Europe, ministering first at Philippi, where he was attacked, beaten with rods, humiliated, having his clothes stripped from him, and drug off to prison, where he and Silas were locked up. He later would report to the Thessalonians in chapter 2, verse 1, he says that he had, quote, suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi. That's where he was before he eventually made his way down the coast to Thessalonica, where he was there also a very, very short period of time. According to the book of Acts, it might have been only three weeks, three Sabbaths that he was there in Thessalonica before he was finally run out of town, he and Silas. He made his way down to Berea where he had a bit more fruitful ministry. The people were serious in considering his claims and the the scripture tells us that they were noble-minded, searching the scriptures to actually find out if what he was saying was true. But Thessalonican Jews came to Berea causing trouble once again and running Paul out of town once again. He continued to move down the coast until he eventually arrived in Athens hoping to meet back up with Silas and Timothy, who he had sent back to Thessalonica and back into Berea in order to try to help establish the church there. But as Paul was waiting in Athens, he was provoked in his spirit by all the paganism there. And the scripture tells us he entered the synagogue, as was his custom, and began to preach the gospel to the Jews who were there. In addition to that, he went into the Agora, the marketplace where the philosophical debates typically happened in those days. He would go to these schools and these debate halls and he would debate with the people there regarding the truth. He was eventually even taken to the Areopagus, the central debate hall in all of Athens, where he, he was mocked and ridiculed by the philosophers there. They called him a babbler, saying strange things. All of that took place in probably nine months. Harassment, trials, beatings, jail time. He finally arrived in Corinth in late 49, early 50, alone, tired no doubt, depleted of his resources. He had to go to work working with his own hands to feed himself. He found a godly couple, Aquila and Priscilla, who were tent makers, began to work alongside of them during the day and spend his nights long into the evening preaching the gospel until Timothy and Silas finally caught up with him and brought him a financial gift primarily from the Philippian church, which allowed him to leave behind his tent making and go full time into the preaching of of the word of God. Paul no doubt was provoked here though as he was in Athens because this was perhaps the most debauched city he had been in. It was a port town to begin with. In fact, 
It was, it was located on a very, very narrow strip of land that connected the southern peninsula of Greece, the Peloponnesus Peninsula, with the main continent. And that gave rise to a stream of commerce and a stream of people into the city, creating a, a cesspool of influences. Anyone traveling from the southern coastlands who wanted to go north would inevitably travel through Corinth along that narrow land bridge. But in addition to that, all of the merchant ships, in order to bypass the dangers on the open sea, would choose to come in the narrow inlets of water that led to two ports on either side of Corinth. They would literally dock at one port on one side of the city, unload their goods, and drag their ships the few miles across the land, put them back in the water, reload their ships, and be on their way. So this was literally the crossroads of southern Europe. And there was a population that swelled to six or 700,000 in Paul's day, full of foreigners, a hub of activity, a tremendous amount of wealth, and a wretched sinfulness. There are people who have questioned in recent years whether or not we have overstated the case of Corinth's sinfulness. That surely is not so. Ancient records indicate that simply with the temple of Aphrodite that was located in Corinth, there were 1,000 temple prostitutes, priestesses, one commentator says each night they would come down into Corinth, off of the uh, uh, Acropolis in the city, come down and ply their trade among the many foreign travelers and local men. This goddess of immorality and sexual debauchery. The orgies of this temple became notorious throughout the Greek world. It was a wicked, wicked city. As a matter of fact, ancient Greek plays whenever they portray a Corinthian, usually portray them as a drunkard. The word Corinthiasestai in, in Attic Greek was synonymous with gross immorality and moral depravity. It was a city that, although it was wealthy, did not enjoy a great reputation throughout the world. In fact, in this, own, in this very letter, Paul lists some of the characteristic sins of the city when he says to the Corinthians in chapter 6, look, some of you were formerly sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, men who practice homosexuality, thieves, greedy, drunkards, revilers, and swindlers. This is what the church was. They just came out of society. This is, in fact, what the church was struggling with as well trying to figure out how to live out the Christian life in that society. Trying to figure out how to be what God calls them to be in the midst of a decadent and morally declining society all around them. On top of all that, there was wealth and materialism that was there because of all the trade and all the ports and everything. There was perhaps no city in all of the Roman Empire that was more consumed with materialism, with social standing and social status. A recent uh, research in this the last 10 years has really brought forth the very rigid lines of, of uh, uh, social strata that were within 
Corinth itself, competition among themselves and competition with neighboring Athens 50 miles away to the northeast. Everyone trying to position themselves with their influential friends and their education and their eloquence within the assembly, constantly craving for recognition within society as the powerful ones, as the wise ones. All this paganism taking its toll on the church so that the immoral habits, the immoral thinking were creeping in. And the church was battling, trying to know how to deal with all this. It's a big agenda throughout this book that Paul would prepare them for that battle. In fact, we have one of the beloved verses in all of Scripture that are found right here in 1 Corinthians for us. In chapter 10, verse 13, no temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able. But with every temptation provides a way of escape, right? This is the message Paul has to deliver to the Corinthian church. It's the message he has to deliver to us in the midst of our own society, in the midst of the own, our own moral decline around us, in the efforts to live out the Christian life. A tremendous book. Not only that, but we can identify with a church here who had been recipients probably of the best teaching that was available to them in that day. Not only had Paul ministered there nearly two years, but we're told after he left, a man named Apollos came, who was described by Luke in the book of Acts as mighty in the scriptures. He was one of the greatest pulpiteers in all of the early church. He had been trained in the best schools in the educational and cultural center of the world in Alexandria. And he ministered in Corinth for some time, we're told. And not only that, but possibly even Peter came to minister in Corinth because Paul makes reference to some people claiming a special allegiance to him. So this church would have benefited from the ministries of none less than Paul, Peter, and Apollos. Perhaps no church in the first century could receive a more stellar staff of teachers at their time. The Corinthian church would have been exposed to a level of teaching that was second to none. Paul had moved on, of course. After Corinth, he went on to a very fruitful ministry for about three years in Ephesus before he eventually took a trip to Jerusalem where he would be imprisoned. We don't know exactly when Paul wrote the Corinthian letters, but probably they took place in that three-year period of time before he took up his final offering to go to Jerusalem. And in that period of time, Paul exchanged probably at least four letters with this church, if not more, all of them relating around so many practical issues. In fact, some people think that 1 Corinthians is the most practical book Paul wrote, like Romans being the most theological. But in reality, if you know Paul very well, you know that there are no non-theological issues, right? Everything for Paul is rooted in theology. In fact, we can see that right from the very beginning in the opening salutation of this great book, Paul lays a foundation and gives us some insight to sort of prepare our minds for a study of this book. Paul's greetings, by the way, are pretty straightforward normally. 
He'll normally name himself, maybe someone who is serving as a secretary or an amanuensis, someone who would be actually writing down as he dictated the letter. He would normally name himself and then he would name his recipients in a very straightforward manner. For example, the Galatian letter, it's just to the churches of Galatia. Or it's to the saints who are at Ephesus, faithful in Christ Jesus. Or it's to the saints who are at Philippi. To the saints and faithful brothers at Colossae. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. Usually very straightforward introductions. But when you come to Corinthians, Paul gives special attention to naming the recipients of this letter, much more so than any letter he wrote. He writes in verse 1, Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is at Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, together with all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Quite an elaborate greeting, quite an elaborate address, but none of it cursory and none of it accidental. As a matter of fact, there are embedded, even in this greeting, the fundamental ideas that Paul will drive home over and over and over again throughout this book. And it provides a sort of fitting way for us to introduce ourselves to the book of 1 Corinthians. And we'll do that, first of all, by taking a look at these issues that he outlines in this church, uh, excuse me, in this uh, section. First of which is God's ownership of the church. God's ownership of the church. He writes in verse 2, to the church of God that is at Corinth. You might be tempted to overlook that phrase as just some sort of elaborate name for the church, some sort of embellished name. But in fact, this is the first of several times that Paul will drive the point that the church belongs to God. The church belongs to God. Particularly in the first four chapters, Paul will use the word God 87 times in the book. More than half of those are in the first four chapters out of the 16 chapters. And it's absolutely crucial that you and I understand and grasp this point. That as a church, this church in Corinth, and even our own church, belongs to God. I mean, this is the foundation of, of everything he has to say, primarily about them overcoming their divisions and overcoming their quarreling and everything else. Uh, everything he has to say about the unity in the church and the effectiveness of, of the church, it's all grounded in that. The fact that they, as a church, belong to God. is probably most clearly seen over in chapter 3, in one verse where he says in verse 9, Look, we are God's fellow workers, but you are God's field. God's building, he says. That's what you are as a church. You are God's building. You are God's field, he says. And later on down in that same chapter, in verse 16, he'll stress not only that, but you're God's temple. 
He says it this way. He says, look, if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. In other words, the church belongs to God and he takes it very seriously. Very seriously. And that's why Paul will emphasize this over and over and over again to the Corinthians. I mean, let's face it, nearly everyone is going to acknowledge in some way that the church belongs to God. But for Paul, he knew that this had implications. He understood that you cannot say that and then go about your business in a worldly fashion when you're dealing with God's church. The church is owned by God and is built by God's power. As a matter of fact, he says back in chapter 3, verse 6, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. Look, if the church is God's building, and if the church is God's field, and if the church is God's temple, Paul says it's going to be God who causes the growth. Or another way to say that is that if the church is going to grow, and we're talking about spiritual growth here, we're not talking about man-made manipulated manipulated effects. If the church is going to grow the way that God wants it to grow, it's going to have to grow by His power. It's going to have to be by His power. That's why back in chapter 1, verse 17, Paul says, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with eloquent words of wisdom. Why? Lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Listen, folks, when you understand that the church belongs to God and you understand that it's God's building and you understand that it's God who provides the growth, then you understand that it has to be His power that's doing it. And Paul understood this, that if it's going to be His power, it had to come from His message. He says in verse 18 of chapter 1, Look, this message that he preached is foolishness for some people, but for those who are being saved, it's the power of God. The power of God. There's a clear distinction between a wisdom that Paul will go on to say, a wisdom that comes from the world and a wisdom that comes from God. And God's ownership over the church demands that we build the church according to that wisdom which comes from Him. In fact, Paul would emphasize this in chapter 2, verse 1. He says, look, when I came to you, brothers, I didn't come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. But I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Why? Why? Verse 5. So that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. See, Paul understood that if the church belongs to God, if it is His building, if He's the one who's actually constructing it, if it's going to be done by Him, then there must be a choice to reject the wisdom of men in order to allow people to build their faith on the power of God. And Paul did not want to be found building with the wrong materials. In fact, he'll say it in chapter 3. Some people build with wood, hay, and stubble. 
Paul says, I'm not going to lay any other foundation. I'm not going to build with any other materials than that which the Lord gives. That's what he says there in chapter 3, verse 5. He says, look, what is Apollos? What is Paul? We're just servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I mean, Paul had a, Paul had a, a, a very keen sense that he had nothing to bring to the table. He had nothing to offer except himself as a tool in the Lord's hands. And if anything was going to happen, it wasn't going to happen by his ingenuity. It wasn't going to happen by his creativity. It was going to happen by the power of God working in their life. And so Paul says, look, I'm just, what am I? I'm just a servant. I'm not an entrepreneur. I'm not some, you know, call man at the circus. I'm not a comedian. I'm not a therapist. All I am is some worker in God's field planting God's seed. And he's the one that brings the growth. In fact, down chapter 4, he says very clearly, this is how one should regard us. This is how you should think of us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. You know what a steward is? A steward is a caretaker. They're just somebody, they don't create things, they don't invent things, they don't come up with things, they receive things for the primary purpose of safekeeping. That's what a steward is. In fact, Paul says in the next verse, it is required of stewards that they be found trustworthy. Why? Because you're entrusted with a deposit. That's your primary characteristic as a steward. See, Paul's going to drive this home. If this is God's field, if this is God's building, if you are God's temple, then get out of the way and let God's power do His work by delivering God's mysteries. That's what all chapter 4 is about. Chapter 1 through 4, excuse me. A steward. Being found faithful. Paul believes in this because he deeply understands the church belongs to God. In fact, back there in chapter 1, very first verse, this is Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle. He saw everything, everything as being by God's will. There's a second issue that he deals with in this salutation, which is Christ's sanctification. Of them. He addresses it there again, again in verse 2 to those sanctified in Christ Jesus. Now we know that word, sanctified. It's used a lot in Scripture. It has the same root as the word for holy, it has the same root as the word for saints. Basically means to be set apart, it means to be separate from something. Scripture speaks in the Old Testament about God dwelling on a high and holy place. It's just basically saying that God is separated from all that is common and all that is ordinary. God is not ordinary. He is not common. He is not profane. He's holy. He's set apart. But it not only is just being set apart, but in the Scripture, it is particularly being set apart to God, dedicated to Him. 
That's why, that's why utensils, spoons and bowls can be holy. It doesn't have to do primarily with moral choices because bowls don't make moral choices, right? It has to do with dedication, consecration. You're set apart for the Lord. You're set apart for His use. That's what this is all about. And this would be important as Paul would emphasize this over and over and over again. And we will see it as we go through the book of Corinthians. This will be emphasized to us. Especially in contrast to this church, which was perhaps the most immoral church that Paul wrote any of his letters to. As a matter of fact, beginning in verse 10 of chapter 1, going all the way through the end of the book, it deals primarily with wrong doctrine, wrong behavior, wrong living. Seemingly every serious doctrinal moral error imaginable had found its way into this congregation. In fact, some in the congregation apparently had taken for themselves this little motto which said, all things are lawful for me. In fact, Paul, Paul will repeat it several times throughout the book, directly addressing them. It's not surprising if Paul showed up in Corinth barely maybe nine months or a year after the Jerusalem council. He no doubt would have told them about all the events of that Jerusalem council. He would have told them about the decree that was issued by the apostles and how they were no longer under the Mosaic law. They would have heard that, but unfortunately they mistook that. They misunderstood that to mean that somehow... They could go out and pursue a life of sin and a life of licentiousness and do it under the favor of God. This was a church, in other words, that was struggling to understand its fundamental separation from the world. But Paul will emphasize it to them over and over and over again. I mean, even in matters like court cases in chapter 6, he just says it's ridiculous. That you, as believers, would go to the world to resolve resolve conflict. To deal with legal matters. You are separate from the world. He says, don't you know that you're going to judge the world one day? He says to him later on in the same chapter, look, you were in the world. You were uh, adulterers. You were swindlers. You were all these, these people who did all these illegal things, but God sanctified you. Tell him, even in chapter 7... Look, you have the ability as husbands and wives to sanctify one another and even to sanctify your own children. All these things, he'll tell them at the end of chapter 6, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who's within you, that you have from God, and you are not your own? You were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. He'll come back later in chapter 10 and say, look, whatever you do, whether you eat or whether you drink, you're supposed to be doing all things to the glory of God. The most mundane thing in your life, eating and drinking, is sanctified to the Lord for His purposes. In spite of all the wickedness surrounding them in the city they were supposed to be constantly reflecting on this fact constantly living out this fact that they had been set apart in christ and they were now to glorify god in their bodies 
and in their church. That is so crucial for us to understand, especially today, since there's an enormous effort, an enormous amount of literature being produced to emphasize what's sometimes called contextualization. Which at its very core is just basically the idea that we've got to present the message within the context of our culture, but often is taken by many people to mean that we have to present our message like the culture. In fact, one of their banner verses is right here in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, where Paul says, I have become all things to all people so that by all means I might save some. And so the thinking normally goes, let's go out there and let's become just like everybody else. Let's become just like them. Let's go out and look just like the world and talk just like the world and sound just like the world. Let's become like them so that we can save them. Always sounds very noble. Well, listen, whoever is using and co-opting that verse out of chapter 9 has no idea what Paul means when he talks about contextualization. Because whatever Paul's saying in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, it is framed within the context of other passages like chapter 5. When he says, look, if there's any brother who has anything to do with sexual immorality or greed or idolatry or revilers or drunkards or swindlers, don't even so much as eat with him, he says. That as a church... You've been set apart for God. You need to stand distinct from the world in both your life and in your message. Your doctrine and your deeds, they've got to be distinct if they're ever going to be used by God. It's 1 Corinthians. And then one final issue in this salutation is their unity with other saints. Paul says it there in verse 2, that at the, along with being or belonging to God, along with being sanctified in Christ, he says they are called to be saints together with all those who in every place call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. This letter will repeatedly emphasize this as well, the unity of the body of Christ. The oneness of the body of Christ. Spoken to a a congregation that was in a society that loved to emphasize the cultural and economic and racial distinctions. Of those 600,000 people, we're told that probably one half of them were slaves. Slaves to the wealthy in society. And yet we'll learn right here in chapter 1 and verse 26. That when God called the church, He didn't call many mighty, and He didn't call many noble, He didn't call many wise, but He called the base things of the world, He called the foolish, He called the weak. Why did He do that? So, as He says at the very end of chapter 1, so that if anyone boasts, they're going to boast in God. They're going to boast in God. I mean, he'll come back later in chapter 12 and he'll say, look, just like a body has many members and yet it's one body, you as a, as a church are one person. He says, so it is with Christ. He says, look, if, you are, if you're a foot, if you're a hand, if you're an ear, it doesn't matter. 
You're all one body. He'll tell them in chapter 10, he says, we take one bread to emphasize that although we are many, we're one body. He will just continually pound this home to us over and over and over again. He even says here in chapter 1, verse 13, that Christ is not divided. You don't have... You don't have the noble on one side and the ignoble on the other side. You don't have those from Apollos and those from Paul and those from Peter and those from Christ. You don't have factions. You don't have divisions. You don't have strata. You don't have first class, second class. You don't have any of that in the body of Christ. You are called, and when you're called, you're called together with every single person who calls on the name of Christ. And it doesn't matter where they came from doesn't matter what part of society they came from. You need to get in your head that no matter how educated you are, no matter how successful you are, no matter how upwardly mobile you are, you are one together with every brother and sister on the face of the earth who calls on the name of Christ. And most certainly, most certainly, those in your own congregation That's why Paul will come back later in chapter 8 and he says, look, if you sin against a weaker brother and you cause them to stumble, you're sinning against Christ. You're sinning against Christ because you're one body. You can't hold those weaker brothers and weaker sisters at bay. You can't hold them off and say, well, if they were as wise as me, if they were as godly as me, if they were whatever, they wouldn't be having their problems. If they, they ought to know better, they ought to be mature, they ought to be all that. No, you can't do that. You need to realize, as he says in 1 Corinthians 12, if one person suffers, the whole body suffers. You're called, he says, together with all those in every place who call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. He loves them. He died for them as much as He did for you. It's a great book. Great challenges for us to the high calling of unity within the body of Christ, sanctification within the body of Christ, and a deep understanding that we as a church belong to Him. Let's bow together, be closed in a word of prayer. Father, we are grateful this morning for the word of God which gives us wisdom. Lord, we confess that if we were to build the church on our own, it will inevitably fracture. It will come apart along the lines of division of our own wisdom and our own status our own pride, our own arrogance, our own boasting. Help us, Lord, to always plow the field with your tools, to always sow the seed of your word, to always harvest the fruits together as one body, doing your work your way with your message and seeing your results. Lord, we need this. We pray that you would use this book in our lives and in our congregation in the coming weeks and months to grow us into a more dedicated congregation and more dedicated saints for you. We pray these things in Christ's name.
Amen.